It reminds me of a gravestone I saw, I saw and took a picture of. It was like, don't look for me here. I am the diamond glint on snow and the stars in the sky or something. I was like, <coughs> you know what? I've heard these these things before. Like people say, you know, m- that people's spirits are now like in all of the smiles of the dogs and all the beautiful things on earth. That's where they are now. It's like, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, which to me that kind of signals that, like I've just sort of disappeared into the ether and now I'm all the beautiful things you see. It seems a little bit arrogant to me because if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, the rational thing to say is that you're now like manure or... Worms. Yeah, <laughs> worm poo. <laughs> like, get real. The diamond yeah. glint on snow, that's just light refracting off of water. You're not that. <laughs> <laughs> Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Mm, So, we back. I've got uh, some news I say without regret or embarrassment that I have started to read. The Lord of the Rings. Yes, what? dude, that's good timing. I just finished it. Had you never read it before? So I had never read it growing up. I had never read it or Narnia before. And oh. when I was with Focus, this was like five years ago. Um, a friend out in Nebraska gave me The Magician's Nephew, which is the first Narnia book, and she was like, "You have to read these." And so I am proud to say, as of last week on retreat, actually. I've read all seven Narnia books, and I've read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy. But I had not finished, I had not finished, I had finished like half of Return of the King, and for some reason I put it down like a year ago, and then I finished it on retreat. Well, I didn't realize that bringing that up would make this whole thing into a contest of who's read more books, but whatever, dude. I mean, if that's what you're into. (laughs) Anyway, how's it going? What part are you on? Yeah, yeah, where are you on it? Have you, um, have you read The Hobbit? No, but he does a like, prologue that kind of explains a little bit. I mean, when he gets in, it's kind of like the Bible. When he gets into the parts where he's talking about, you know, Gilgalad and Glindor and Tenuviel and such and such ancient lore and all, over the east of the Misty Mountains and the whatever, you kind of like, my eyes glaze over. <laughs> but I do... Uh, and I glanced at the appendix. I have like the 50th anniversary edition of all three into one book. And there's also all, all sorts of appendices that were added. And he says in the foreword that he, he kind of like wrote these for the super fans from like the 50s and 60s who like were the first to read it. We're all wondering about, you know, the history of this character or, the, you know, this area of the of Middle Earth. And I glanced at one and it was just made you want to poke your eyes out it was so boring i read one paragraph and and i thought all of this is made up how is the book quit do i know dude i know shut up and tell us how the book is i do like it big caveat too i'm not i don't 
I don't like it. <laughs> it's like the movie Frozen. I just watched it to like see what the kids are in. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I don't, mean, I I don't the, actually enjoy it. I read the appendix yeah. and like was yeah. reading the history of each character but, just so I can understand the characters. Yeah, man. I yeah, downloaded totally. Pokemon Go just freaking speaking for the exercise. I, gosh. No, it's fine. Um, <laughs> it's not my favorite. I'll, I'll be honest, but it's it's caught my caught my attention. I've been reading it every night. I'm like almost to the halfway point of the first one. I just started on Wednesday. You haven't seen oh, wow. the movies? Um, you know, I've, I'm trying to. I've seen scenes from the movies, and I'm trying to wash them from my mind as much as I can, and not imagine the faces of the few characters who I do know. Do yeah. know, like Gandalf and Frodo. Um, there is it. Not spoil my imagination. I'd say the main thing that struck me so far, because they're just tooling around. Uh, trying to get away from these horsemen uh, after leaving the Shire <clears throat> is the uh, the thing that Mike did you talk about this on the podcast that about probably was the, it uh, insightful and brilliant it was moderately insightful and somewhat brilliant yeah I'll accept <laughs> the whole idea of celibacy as kind of a leaving of the Shire um, it makes it very clear Tolkien does that Frodo doesn't leave the Shire because he's sick of it he leaves it because he loves it and wants it to continue to exist. And uh, I've just noticed that a lot of my summer has been taken up with, and even now, a lot of weddings still to do, uh, like the preparation of marriage and, and helping people who are in marriage. Uh, I guess it's not that I want to be married, but I love marriage more than I ever have before. Or I see the the importance and the good of it more than I ever did before. Because as a priest, you're, you're sort of put in the middle of everything and you realize everything is family. You know, like the even my reflections on the whole political situation, I, I just realize now that uh, the president is not, not that important. Uh, the president is kind of an indicator. All politicians are all figures of authority that are like high up and insulated from the realities of life, but who kind of, you know, pull puppet strings and make policies that do affect normal people on a daily basis. But the most important people are mom and dad to every human being born. You know, they are the people who are going to most influence their life, their decisions, um, you know, what's important to them, what they believe, their worldview. And so you, you have power to make actual change and improvement in the lives of people by helping moms and dads live uh, well the way God wants them to live you know and, and happy and that's kind of what the Shire symbolizes to me is like this uh, sort of happy it's not perfect right it's kind of insulated and gossipy and uh, I thought there was interesting insight I forget who says it that you can you can shut yourself in, but you can't block the world out. Like the things that are going on outside the Shire, all this, these movements of evil and and war will eventually influence the people in the Shire. Uh, and it's Frodo who has to leave it in order to defend it. I don't know, all that, that symbolism has kind of struck me as very true. You know, that you want, my desire is for everyone to be happy healthy holy fulfilled alive and uh there's all sorts of forces in the world and in the universe and in history 
that undermine that and corrupt it. And so certain people receive this calling to sort of leave it for its own sake, for the sake of the thing itself. You get what I'm saying? <clears throat> yeah, which is also always what Christ talks about when he specifically <laughs> indicates towards celibacy. He always says it's for the sake of the kingdom. And even in, if I remember correctly, in the ordination, right, like when you actually make promises, it, it always says for the sake of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Like that is, that is the goal to which, or at least the, the spouse to which you are working, you know, that's the bride that you're serving. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is so much with Frodo there. And I just think like, you know, like in the midst of discernment here in seminary and uh, having the vocation solid, but still not ordained yet, like working towards that um, vocation becoming a reality. Uh, just how Frodo, there's always this acceptance of it. Like, it's not like he is um, choosing the ring and going after it and like, you know what, I'll take on this huge burden and I'll go on and, and destroy the ring and save all of civilization. You know, like, it's just this very simple, what's the next step that I do? always in relationship, always in community, like always as a part of a family and this acceptance of the vocation that at first, like that was always so surprising, the simplicity and really the normalcy with which the ring comes into his life. It's almost like it's nothing. And I, I get confused oftentimes with the movie and the books, but at least in the movies, like when the ring comes into play, there's, there's almost no weight to it in his life. But that little acceptance of like really this huge burden slowly plays itself out more and more throughout the rest of the book that it turns out, yeah, he's this priest figure that's leaving his family so that these families can live and can breathe. And um, I guess that's just on my heart and on my mind as like finishing up this retreat here and starting our third year of theology we're going to be deacons, dude. That's like... Yeah, I was just thinking that by the time you do this trip in May to Paris, you guys will be deacons, right? I will be. Mike, it'll be like upcoming Mike's ordination. I'm, I'm getting back on Tuesday and I'll be ordained on Saturday. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's right in between when school ends and my ordination. So we'll be celebrating Rob's and, you know, looking forward. It'll be the eschatological celebration of like... It's here, but not quite yet for my for my ordination and Michael's as well. Michael Brimmer. Yep. Yep. Yeah, dude. Oh gosh, dude. Connor, paint you a little picture here. Paint the picture, Rob. Literally, we could be gallivanting around France. <laughs> Mike and Bremer could be preparing for their ordination. We could podcast a couple times when we're there. Plus, you could be freaking ripping out mass at these holy places yeah. with me as your deacon, dude. Holy smokes. That is uh, quite a picture you painted. <laughs> I'm no artist. <laughs> no Mike, artist. will you literally paint that? I don't know, man. My painting skills have been diminished. What? And I was wondering, like, I don't have a strong desire to paint anymore. Huh. It's very tedious. Interesting. Yeah, you know, what I've had a desire to do lately is write. I, I wrote something. I put it. I don't know if you guys saw it. I put it up on the. Uh, Definitely saw it. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. did you read it? Definitely. Oh, yeah. It was a good read for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know you guys aren't fans of the podcast, so. Well, that's not true. But anyways, no, I'm a uh, fan. I just I listened listen to an to episode it. last night. 
I did while I was doing my laundry. You listened to us? I did. It's a little yeah. narcissistic. I've done yeah. it. Hey, yeah, what do you write? What do you write? Because <laughs> I have something to say. Speak your piece. Oh, no, I was just saying. Well, I wrote something on natural law. It was just something that kind of occurred to me. But mentioning painting, you know, like the desire to create something. I also have another kind of essay I want to write um, about something I read plus sort of reflections on my Idaho fly fishing trip this past summer, uh, as well as finish that book, uh, that little ebook kind of thing about making disciples of Jesus. But it's, uh, it's interesting. You have to, you have to isolate yourself for a long time to do that kind of work. Whether, I mean, imagine painting, you, you don't want to like do 20 minutes here, 20 minutes there. You, you really have to dig in, which is part of what makes it tedious. I over, mm, was this in the winter? I read or listen to a bunch of books on kind of, you know, how I'm a big David Allen getting things done person. Yeah. Um, so productivity and and just execution of tasks and what needs to be done. I feel much more on top of my work now than I ever have before uh, so that I can take like just 24 or 36 hours away from the parish and have everything be properly engaged with all of my many projects that I'm doing. So that when I come back into the office, I have a list there of like things I can just continue to check off, which means I can, when the time allows, if I don't have scheduled things like classes to teach or funerals to do or, or wedding prep or anything like that, I can, I can pretty much do whatever. And so like writing that natural law article, I was able to get long stretches of just sitting there and it feels really good to just create something, you know, and, and sort of feels important to me to do that even if no one reads it i was kind of thinking like hmm, should i submit this to journals or whatever or publications but then i was like i just wrote it to write it you know it was like ars gratia artis just yeah. just do it yeah um any case what were you gonna say rob well well i i was i was thinking wait a minute you're not rob no 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 this is mike yeah, this Please is Please state your name before you talk, like a conference call. Uh, hi, I'm Michael. I've been <laughs> podcasting for two years now. Two? Is it two and a half? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, I guess we are going on two and a half. Well, one, I think we're going to be able to podcast from the Holy Land this year. Oh, cool. <laughs> that will be awesome. Um, and then two, I don't know if I, if I kind of got away from your point there, but that idea of like the priesthood as being for the family. Mm. And, and I remember I had... Um, a moment over the summer where one of my buddies that I worked with in the hospital who we he was a, a pretty strong scripture believing Protestant and I was trying to talk to him about like essentially the that family is the basis of all social structure that family is the basis of all society and it seems like I actually really struggled to even give evidence for it because it's you know, and I'll just point to Chesterton as kind of a relief for me. But it's one of those things that's so obvious you almost can't, you can't even point to it. Right. Like, look at anything, and there's starts with a mom and a dad. Look at anything, and it starts with family. And, yeah. And and so to be able to give your life in service to the like the most foundational thing to society slash relationship slash family, that's a very beautiful calling. Um, and that, that's what it sounded like you were describing there, like that realization that my life is for the family is for moms and dads, the most influential people in children's lives 
you are going to be the one that shapes and forms them as disciples. Well, what I was going to say, um, it actually started with, I, my heart has just been like absolutely jamming lately in prayer on the notion of dependence, like in my own life, not like dependence on God, but like dependence on God through other people. And it actually started with, I re, very rarely do I do this, but I went back and listened to one of our podcasts for the summer, Bisctron, mm-hmm. and something you said, I don't know how you, I don't even know if this is what you said, but this is what I heard in it, and it like seriously had a profound impact on me in my prayer. But it was when you were reading that book on um, addictions. Do you remember talking about this? Mm-hmm. And like the notion that, I think your idea in it was like the notion that we can become like addicted to our idea of a relationship with God. Like that's what I heard right. in it. And if it if that's the case, then it's not actually real. And like we literally just become addicted to it because we want God to act in the same way he always acts. And um, I don't know, the story that my heart has been like really resonating with big time lately uh, I had I caught up with a friend over the summer, and uh, just a really really holy um, girl, and she was talking about this story where she was in the Holy Lands, and she really wanted to stay. Like she had this like very real, very powerful prayer experience there, and she just had this notion that like she was supposed to stay for a while, like over there to be with Jesus in this. And so she was like telling this to her spiritual father, who was a priest we both know. And I, she kind of said it almost in passing. Um, cause she ended up not staying and I think like felt, you know, seemed to like be in a really good place about that. But at the time, and this priest like answer to her was that he was literally going to give her all of his money in order to be able to stay over there. Like this was his spiritual daughter and she really wanted this. And like in order to to like grow in her relationship with Jesus. And I guess he just told her it like blew her away because she wasn't expecting it because she was saying it like not as a reality. And he was like, yeah, well, I know you can like stay with the, like this certain convent and it's like, you know, this much. And and he literally said he was like, I have this much money. So like you could stay that long. Wow. And I was like, dang, dude, that that just like spoke to me i guess and not not that and it wasn't the notion that like he was saving her it was that like she was saving him like he loved her so much that she made him weak Hmm. like weak enough to do that and even when i heard that like when you were talking about that notion of like growing in like just your love for marriage through these weddings and stuff it's like that's that's like a real dependence because like in your vocation as a priest, um, that's what, that's what, that's what's allowing you to live your call is that. Yeah. Um, and it's, it can be profoundly frustrating because people, absolutely, as you, it's like a father in, in every way, you know, you, you know what people need to do to some extent, like the base, the basics, you know, go to mass, uh, pray, yeah, you know, baptize your children. Do do what you need to do, like to have the bare minimums in place, so that you can actually have the a fruitful and free and 
faithful relationship with each other and with God and, and therefore like have the chance of being happy, not only here, but in eternity. You know, you just want people to have that. And so often they just kind of like, oh yeah, this is not, you know, they like you and you're like, oh yeah, you, you know, you make, you, you make a case for Christianity. You make a case for why this is the way. And, and they leave saying like, oh, that's so nice. And then they just keep doing whatever the culture kind of cultural momentum leads them to do. And, and you're like, ah, you know, it's not like I know all the answers, but just come with me. You know, it's like what Christ must have felt when the you know people gave him all sorts of excuses, you know, like, oh, I have a field I just bought or I need to bury my father. You know, people mm. say the same exact thing. Oh, I have to work on Sundays and blah, blah, blah. And you're just like don't miss the point you know it's not out of like you know derision that i feel this way it's out of love you know and you make yourself vulnerable to people when you when you really want something for the other person mm -hmm. but then uh also you know like the the payoff is you know i was thinking about all these saints that we celebrate every day and they're all dead and buried and you know they left the world transformed by their lives to some extent the people that they touched and religious orders that they founded or whatever uh, but the world kept going and now we have new problems and the same thing's going to happen to all of us we're, one day we're going to die and then that's it and the people we affected will be affected but largely the world will keep going and continue to have new problems that we can't even think of right now we can't even imagine what you know you know the Nietzsche's and Kant's of the 20 the 2200s you know or whatever the philosophical or cultural mm -hmm. or political things that will will make it hard on people to live happy lives um because all to me it's all a capitulation recapitulation of the fall it's the, the more we push god to arm's length and think we can live without him whether we can have a political system without him or we can have a family without him it's all a lie you can't have anything without him uh everything comes from him and my belief is that to have a happy life, uh, you have to encounter him and re reorient your life to him, uh, to be reborn, to be forgiven for the times that you've pushed him away, and then to like f to follow him into whatever way, you know, not to Lord of the Rings this, but, you know, <laughs> the, the Frodo thing, like to, to get up and have the faith to do it. Um, yeah. And I think that... If, if I make one effect, here's the thing about good, that if good is diffusive of itself, you know, there could be all these factors working against you. You know, there could be all sorts of dark riders after you, but you make one, you make a difference in one family. And, you know, that's generations from now, when nobody knows who you are, you will still be affecting people. Absolutely. You know, and I was thinking about this when we had St. Monica the other day, the feast day. Mm -hmm. And uh, the priest who most influenced me uh, to consider the priesthood, first considered priesthood himself when he was on a merchant marine uh, ship, an oil tanker going to Alaska. And the room he was staying in on the ship had a bunch of kind of unseemly uh, reading material, as you might uh think sailors would kind of store up in these kind of bunker type things but then there was also just happened to be a copy of augustine's confessions Whoa. which he read Whoa. and then 
he was kind of isolated and lonely on this ship for a long time, uh, doing this job, not knowing where to go in life. And he read this thing and it led him to consider becoming a priest. And then later on influenced me. And I wrote my thesis on Augustine's confessions. And just think about Monica, you know, like that, whatever, whatever you have to, to put it at the service of God and his kingdom, that's the parable of the talents, which was the, happened to be the gospel that day, that will multiply beyond your imagining, you know, like hiding your stuff or, or thinking it's yours or trying to just eke out whatever enjoyment you can out of the little that you've been given. What little you have is going to be taken away from you. But if you, whatever you have, you put at the service of, of God. It's like she, her prayers were, and her influence and her example were like the main influence, according to Augustine, besides all the other intellectual and Ambrose and all that other stuff. But it was the faith of his mother. And he was with her at the end. And he became this great saint and then wrote this book. And whatever, 1600, 1700 years later, some guy picks it up, reads it, and then goes and is a chaplain at U of I and influences me. And it continues to bear fruit, you know. So I, I just find that very uh, encouraging to me, when, especially when it feels like a bit, little bit of a losing battle. You read the statistics and, you know, like in, in certain socioeconomic classes, if you, if you cut the data right, like over 60 or 70 percent of babies by the time they're 18 don't have both parents in the house, you know, yeah. uh, either because they were born out of wedlock or because their parents were divorced. Uh, and that is just, man, disaster. How do you build a society back when yeah. people have no idea what, what real marriage or commitment or love looks like, you know, but if you can just make one difference, um, that'll just echo through eternity, you know? Yeah. Man, dude, there's just a lot pinging through my brain right now. But Father Karchi, he gave his rector's address last night, and it was very good. Yeah. And really his big two points, his big one point that he, he made was, like, the love of the priesthood is, uh, is kind of a two-pronged thing, that you have this infatuation, this, like, deep spark, this... Um, kind of unknown, whatever dynamic that fascination. By the way, oh, what did I say? Infatuation. Yeah, he literally said in his talk not to use infatuation. Not, not to so use, yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. by the way, <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Fascination, and so it was fascination, and then also uh, this idea of suffering. That um, as a priest, you're both fascinated with your parish, with your people with the creative dynamic of the Holy Spirit acting within you as a disciple, but also along with it. And I heard my internship priest uh, talk quite a bit about this, but like the idea of love and all of these stories, I think, have elements of it, but it, it opens yourself up. It makes you weak to the point where you can be crushed by the other person's will, that you can be shaped by the other person's will. And... Like he talked about it quite a bit last night, but oftentimes, like as the priest or as the father in a family or as someone who's in charge responsible for a community, like you may know what's best. Um, but that idea of love as opening up yourself so that like the will of the other can actually be done, can be exercised freely as well, 
also makes you open to having having your heart broken and having your heart destroyed and and then having to like give that back to the Lord and suffer with your people. That was one of the big things that my internship priest talked a lot about was as a father, you take on the suffering of your people that like in their freedom, you're offering, you know, this grace of God as an instrument of his of his grace in the church. You're offering eternal life and like salvation and joy and the goodness of discipleship. And you're also putting yourself at the mercy of their will. And it's this two pronged thing where, yeah, I mean, we can be absolutely fascinated and deeply in love and excited and creative and dynamic. But at the same time, like our love makes us vulnerable to suffering, suffering immensely with our people. And honestly, like, I don't know about with your stories, but it sounds like at your parish, you may be experiencing a bit of both, that there's a little bit of frustration that's there. Just taking on taking on that suffering of your people and like what do I do as a dad with this um and how that kind of shapes us uh, how we are shaped by that um and even in relationship to God like that whole idea that if we love God we also are we have to be open to the will of God as shaping us instead of I mean that's been like probably my biggest deterrent in prayer is me trying to tell God my will and like having him conform to my will. Like, God, just give me this little help. Help me to feel better instead of like, Lord, shape me to your will. And how difficult that is, this idea of acceptance rather than imposition. Um, Man, it's scary. But yeah, with the fascination also comes the suffering. But that was his two things. And that was really going through my head as you were talking. Not infatuation. Yeah, you become more, uh, I mean, it, it'd be easy to just sort of mail it in and as a priest kind of do the bare minimum or or not get so, you sort of cordon off your life, compartmentalize it and say, because it would insulate you from the heartbreak a little bit if you weren't so, uh, if you didn't have so much skin in the game, wanting people to, to answer the invitation. Yeah. Um, but you, when you really... You know, I was thinking about like one particular guy who I just thought, you know what, I'm going to start praying for him to go through RCIA. You know, enough of this diddle daddle. Oh, you know, we're all, you know, I'm such and such Protestant and it's we believe, basically believe the same thing, but he doesn't go to church, doesn't practice his faith. And is a happy, good guy. But, you know, I as a priest just I see him and I'm like, I know I want more for you, you know, and I know you're capable of it. And it would make you happy. And I can't, I can't sell you on it. So maybe I'll just go to God and just pray for you. Just make it my project. And and then that, you know, your then your heart really gets into it and gets attached to people. And hopefully not attached in the way that's unhealthy, um, where it'll just crush me if you don't do what I want. You know, kind of like this sort of disordered love of possession, but that real love of a person that, you know, respects the person as another human being with a free will and a, and in their own destiny, their own destination, and you're just part of it and you want what's good for them. And I was thinking about, you know, as you 
because it's all just the lens of the cross, you know, like the, the cross is because what you're saying is what about my own relationship with God? Because you're trying to give other people this relationship. But, you know, your own can suffer sometimes when you overwork or you, you get fixated on the wrong things or infatuated uh, with your work or with your people. And it's just a question of relinquishing control of your life. But that is the mysteriously the way to freedom is to just say, I completely relinquish control. And I ask God, how do you want me to love you? You know, not give me this or give me that. Like, I am your servant at your disposal. Tell me what to do and then give me the grace to do it. This is like most simple prayer, but it's the only way. And not to get too into this reflection I had, but when I when I was flying back from Idaho, so I went fly fishing with the bro dudes in August, early August. Nice. And uh, it was great. We camped and by the river and just fished every day and grew beards and got dirty and said swear words. It was it was beautiful. Um, <laughs> but the first time I'd ever gone there was, I think, 11 years prior when I was uh, still in college. And it was the it was kind of the moment that I decided to become a firefighter. It was also I was in the middle of this discernment of like, maybe I want to be a priest. And so it's kind of a, a pivotal time in my life. And a really cool trip and a lot of us that were there were on that first trip in college we were all from the newman center and now all but like two of us are priests which is just crazy there was nine of us there um so anyway what i like about fly fishing trips is that you're kind of alone for a lot of the day if you want to be you can just go off into the river and walk upstream and just keep fishing all day and whenever you want to go back to camp and hang out with the guys you can so there's a lot of nice alone time, which I like. Um, but just that one moment I stopped fishing because none of the fish were biting and I just kind of looked around and here you are in the mountains. It's a clear water national forest. You're in the middle of nowhere, kind of. Um, I look up and I heard this bird screeching and it was this osprey uh, up in an osprey nest and they, they nest in dead trees and there's this like kind of tuft of twigs and whatnot at the very top of this big old dead tree. And this bird is just squawking. And then I look up and there's a bald eagle circling over it. And it's probably why she's squawking because he's into the whole egg thing. <laughs> but uh, the sun was just like beating down on me and the water was cold on my legs, but the air was hot on my torso. And uh, here I am in the middle of this place all by myself. And I am the part of nature which appreciates nature and the beauty and majesty of it all. And I just thought like, I was here 11 years ago and I couldn't see this the way I can see it now. And if I come back in another 11 years, I'll probably be able to see it even better. Do you get what I'm saying? Like the, it was my own interior belief when it comes down to it. It's like what, what I believe about God, creation, myself, my role in creation that allows me not to like turn this into some kind of snapshot. It doesn't make me want to like pull out my iPhone and take a picture of it and show it to people. Like, look at the cool trip I took, yeah. but to really just sit in it. Um, but here I am telling this story. So I still have some, some desire to possess that beauty rather than just behold it. Um, Dude, that's a, that's you know a legit, saying? yeah, that's a deep reflection. I mean, what, and you might not have been, saying this exactly but i was thinking just the tension like 
the tension involved there of um, like experiencing God as another, like an outside reality that's forming and shaping and honestly almost like breaking you. But it's all to realize that like God is also within, like more intimate to, to you than you are to yourself, you know? And I guess that's like where that vision at least how I heard it, like where that vision comes from, it's like, yeah, you're seeing the world. Um, you could you say it a lot of words, like in a sacramental lens and a Eucharistic lens, but ultimately, like you're seeing it with God's eyes at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, and to it, some extent, it, you know, but I still have blinders on because of true false yeah. beliefs or or even but, a weak will. But that's what I meant with the tension of like. Literally, the experience of that outside reality is like continuing to break you, to to shape you. Also, that like exactly eleven years ago or eleven years from now, when you go again, you'll see it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, but yeah. I also think that um, you know, eventually, I won't need to go out into the wilderness to whatever you want to call it, behold or bask in God's majesty. Yeah. You know, you can yeah. be sitting, I've seen old people in nursing homes uh, that can't leave their rooms, They're just sitting there and uh, some are miserable, but some are like really happy. Yeah. That Like true beatitude. And, and you're like, you can't do any of the things that I can do. And I don't even appreciate the things I can do, the places I can go, things I can see, yet you're happier than me. Um, and so this gets kind of my, to my point, not to get too bogged down into the, into the philosophy of it, but I read again, a book I took off my shelf, uh, to bring on vacation, that philosophy and theology that, uh, by John Caputo that Oaks had us read. Hey, Hey, hey. you're a nerd, dude. Yeah. That's big time. You nerd. brought theology and philosophy on vacation with you. Yeah. yeah I don't know. I, didn't... I usually do that when I go on a trip, I'll just like look over my bookshelf and see if there's anything I might want to reread. Was that from Oakes's Philosophy of Nature class? Probably. I think he had us read it at the beginning of every one of his classes. He really Dang it, dude. See, he 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 died. We only got we only got him for Humanities One. So we well, read. I can, I can sort of. It's only seventy five pages. I read it all on the plane, taking furious notes because it was just kind of dinging all these things in my brain. Break it down for us. Wait, what is it called again? Philosophy and theology. It's a interesting. It's sort of a historical or it's the history of philosophy uh through the lens of this question of the relationship of faith and reason uh under the names philosophy and theology and how in the um you know post ancient world and christendom theology was the queen of the sciences and philosophy was its handmaiden so if aristotle said something that we could use to understand the incarnation or the eucharist then great but in terms of the academy or the university, philosophy was a stepping stone on the way to theology. But revelation was ultimately the rule by which we discover, we, we would see whether or not something was true. You measure, measure it against the rule of faith. So something we think or, or believe contradicts that, then faith trumps it. And then the modern turn is the opposite. You know, even faith, even the object of revelation, God himself, uh, has to be proved through these clear and distinct ideas. You know, he uses Descartes as the turning point for modernity that 
we want to just get modern man wants to get down to brass tacks. What can we be sure about based on kind of undisputable categories of reason, like the principle of non-contradiction or something? I think, therefore, I am. If I'm thinking, even if I'm doubting, I must exist. That I can't doubt because I'm thinking. And and then just sort of like building an edifice of reason on top of that. And then all of modernity is like this playing out of this enlightenment of all of a sudden we don't have to just take things on faith. We can really, uh, we have the capacity in ourselves to to think through these things, you know. But the problem is then faith or God himself becomes sort of like God is the author of reason according to faith. And now we're saying, like, you only get to exist if you, uh, you know, what do you call it? Like, basically subject yourself to the same test that everything else does. You know, you're basically an object of our scientific experimentation. So it, it's, a, it's an upending of the system. And neither he's not a fan of either one. Um, because the, the postmodern turn... Uh, sort of realized like that there is no so he he focuses on heidegger and the mistake that descartes and other moderns made was to think that there is such a thing as a clear and distinct idea or that there's some way like descartes was trying to do to get behind yourself and say this is what's true regardless of language regardless of culture and all of that like what is the what are the true objective truths that we can know um aside from faith. And what Heidegger said is that you can't get behind yourself. You know, you're thrown into existence and you, any seeing of anything, whether in the mind's eye or through your real eye, you see it from an angle. So Descartes, for instance, was thinking linguistically uh, and language has a history and you didn't invent it. And words have meanings that are extrinsic to you and you can't boil them down to ones and zeros like they have all sorts of meaning uh tied up in them and and not to get again too bogged down in it but he's basically saying that you you look through a lens when you see anything and uh so faith and reason are not two opposing forces or two opposing ways of knowing but they're one thing you know before you look at reality before you look at the bald eagle circling over the osprey or before you look at uh, the question, what is justice or does God exist? Like you're looking at that through a lens um, that precedes you. Not, it's not just how you were raised. It's not just the current culture that you're in, but like thousands of years of human history and culture and, and everything um, leading up to that point of how you're seeing that, that paradigm. You know, the people, perfectly intelligent people thought they believed in Arist Aristotelian dynamics and now we believe in Einsteinian physics and it was just a different way of looking at the world and one better describes the things we see. And so when it gets, the question that's really interesting to me is um, depending on what you believe about the world out there, it will determine what you see. So for instance, Christopher Hitchens, uh, God rest his soul, said he didn't believe in God. Part of the reason was because, you know, you look at the history of the human race and for all these tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of years, nobody knew anything about God and everybody was dying in these miserable conditions and uh, infection and lack of any sort of like modern science or medicine. People just had these heinous lives of live and be, eat and be eaten. 
basically Darwinian humanity in its state of nature. And then all of a sudden there happens to be this flash of insight in uh, Mesopotamia or whatever, this person, Abraham, uh, who's polygamous and all this stuff. And um, like, it just doesn't make sense to him that God would allow so much suffering before he finally gave us this kind of weird religion of miracles and stuff. Like it just doesn't work in his system of thinking like if God did exist, then it would have to be this way. You know what I mean? And so he sees that or, you know, he thinks he sees that like, because, of course, nobody can really say how people were living for all those hundreds of thousands of years or whatever. But the person of faith sees the problem of evil or suffering in a totally different way. You know what I mean? Like through the lens of Christianity, you can, even if you can't explain it, why there's earthquakes or why children starve or die of cancer, like you, you still think that it can fit into your system. You, could, you still think it can fit into your worldview. And, and so it's always, what you, whether you think you don't have faith or you do, you do. You have faith in something, whether it's science or a political platform or something. Like you, everything you see, you fit into that system. Do you get what I'm saying? I I think, yeah, that's a profound point, man, because just like even more basically, like just speaking a language necessitates that. Exactly. That is the Heidegger yep. thing. That's the postmodern turn is that it absolutely is. And yeah. like, honestly, it's it's in like the only thing that's ever illustrated that for me is trying to learn another language. Right. And like it 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 rocks you dude because like you are so influenced by that language that you know Mm -hmm. you can't not be yeah the way that verbs relate to nouns and the way that objects relate to subjects and all that stuff like it is a different reality that you are entering into when you learn that other language and like that yeah man that's very real i i wouldn't have known before you went through that i wouldn't have known to associate that basic idea with heidegger but that is like i mean that is like a finger on something that is deeply impacting certainly like our generation but like i know it impacts me greatly um but that like oh man yeah so the ultimate question for me that's really interesting is if if everything that i see is seen through the lens of what i believe is really out there or what I'm expecting to see. Mm-hmm. Like I can't see unless I already have sort of a structure of belief in place that allows me to see it the right way, the way it really is. Mm-hmm. Then what do I have to believe in order to really see? You know what I'm saying? Because if I believe the wrong thing, I'm going to see the same data. I'm going to see the same thing through my eyes, but I'm not going to be able to really see it. You know, like uh, Avery Dulles was able to look at a tree and for whatever reason he had a flash of insight and understood that God does exist, that God is the God of revelation, that God does love us. And all he did was look at like a cherry tree. I can't remember what kind of tree it was, but yeah. Was he like in Boston or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. And these two yeah, things, yeah. they interact like what you see kind of affects the way you see it and your paradigm shifts over True. time. And, yeah. and that's True. what conversion is. And we're all converting every yeah. day. I'm converting every day. What I believe about God, about myself, about the world, about people. And Dude, so that, the whole project of life to me is like conform your belief to the true faith of what of how things really are, who God really is, what what happiness really is. And then you will be able to see. 
Uh, but if you try to just like stay in your your system and like work it all out yourself, like I think that this is the way things should be or I think this is the way my life would be really happy or peaceful and you just try to like fit the world into that, you'll be miserable. But if you do convert yourself or like submit yourself to be converted by grace, then you can see. Dude, that question of what do you have to believe in order to see is a profoundly good question. It it makes me think of the boldness of the church because I think that's what the claim that she makes is like when we say that the church holds truth, like that she is the vehicle for all salvation. I think that's what she's saying. Like, hey, I am the lens through which you properly understand the world. That when you live in me, you also experience the world according to how it was created to be experienced. Like that's the claim that the church makes is we are that right lens. Like those glasses you need to see the world, to see God in your experience. That's what the church says she is. That's a bold claim. Mm-hmm. That's a very bold claim. And we've been reflecting on it for 2,000 years. And and, and deepening it right. and understanding it more. Yeah. Yeah. It's And then allowing our own experience to shape it, like you're saying. Like to have that creation to shape also the way that we see as well. Um, yeah, that's, that is a lot. You, you led us. I, I almost lost you there. Um, yeah, I, so that's why I want to write that as an essay because I, you know, to part of, to me, what writing helps me do is to like formulate this and be able to think it right. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, dude. You, you know what it made me think of over the silent retreat? I was, I read the book, A Severe Mercy. I still have about 40 pages left. Um, and a severe murder, it's just a beautiful work. Uh, and the author of it, I actually have it right here. Very, very good. Um, the author, Sheldon Van Alken, um, whatever, I, I can't pronounce his last name, but he falls in love with this girl, Davy. I don't know. Have you read it? Mm-mm. No, I haven't. You haven't? Well, they, they initially fall in, in love in this self-described pagan love. And I remember the first connecting point that they have, the thing that they connect on, is uh, he always talked about when he was younger and he would go out into the woods or he would take a walk and he would look up into the sky. Man, it's actually interesting how close it is to your story. But he would see basically empty tree branches in a totally open sky. And that was his really first experiences of beauty. And the thing that he connected on with his future wife um, was the pain of beauty. And that was like the one thing that they first had in common was this really deep idea of understanding that beauty can also be painful. Um, And I guess hearing your story, like there's obviously a lot that's going on there. But this idea of what we believe shapes how we see the world. Um, Like those big experiences of, of beauty and of pain and seeing the transcendent, it also calls us to mind that like at what we were actually created for. And in that sense, like what we're seeing is also informing what we believe in that same way. Um, but just having those, uh, the, just the thing that was running through my mind was like the, the pain of beauty because it does draw us to things that we're created for and not quite there yet. What is that? It, 
because I've read that book and it wrecked me. It yeah. was so good. Yeah. But when you say the pain of beauty, I don't remember that part. And yeah. I don't I don't know what you mean, honestly. I and he kind of another way that he talks about it is uh through time, through the lens of time yeah. that Okay. Yeah. Like being stuck in time um is it's it's kind of like I can't remember exactly what he uses to describe it. He uses water and a fish of like a fish could never desire to be outside of water because it's what he was created for. And yet we desire to be in these timeless realities. Yeah. I rem- okay. I do remember because they're talking about they ha- he has an experience of like it's perfect bliss except for he knows it will end. Yeah. It, yeah. That's like his reflection on yeah. it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in the same way, it's like we are made for perfect beauty and yet we live in a fallen world. Yeah, and so dude. perfect beauty is crashing into our world our world that's broken and disconnected and in some ways out of relationship with God. And so the reality of what we were made for and what we're actually living in right now, like somehow those two are meeting at that point in time. And one what it does to the mind is just boggling because I had those experiences over the retreat of like just seeing, almost seeing God like right there through beauty, through creation, through nature. Um, but then also realizing like, yeah, that's, it's not there yet. And so having that pain stirred up that it's the kingdom. I mean, it's the kingdom Keating's thing of the kingdom breaking through. Um, Word up. Amen, yeah. dude. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.